Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and with me this week is the historian Joanna Bork, whose new book, The Story of Pain from Prayer to Painkillers, is out in paperback just this week. Joanna, welcome. Now, this is kind of slightly confounding title because obviously pain is such a wide subject. I mean, how did you sort of begin to get get a handle on it. Yeah, I mean, I became really interested in pain actually when I was in great agony in hospital one week. And, you know, I just had a major operation and I was in real, real agony because basically my morphine pump wasn't working. I kept pushing it. But of course, you know, typical patient, I wanted to be a good patient. I didn't want to disturb the hard work working nurses. So I decided to distract myself and I picked up this wonderful book. It's a tiny little booklet, really, which is called On Being Ill by Virginia Woolf. If you haven't read it, it's well worth it. It's published in the 1920s. And in it, she has this great passage where she says something along the lines of, you know, the merest schoolgirl, when she falls in love, has a language to talk about love, but let her have a headache and try to communicate it to the doctor and language runs dry. And I was really struck by that. And my partner came to visit and I was telling him really excitedly about, you know, Virginia Woolf and, you know, pain is beyond language, incommunicable. And I noticed sort of his face changing. And I said, what's wrong? He said, you know, Joanna, you've been talking about the inability of people in pain to communicate pain for over an hour. (laughs) And this is when I decided that actually there is something really important about pain. We all experience it, but we all do have difficulties talking about it. And I guess the real core of the book is about, well, maybe the problem is not that people in pain don't have a language, but maybe it's that people who are witnessing pain don't want to hear it. So it's all about the book really came out of this idea of pain as something that is about communication. It's intersubjective. Well, what I, I mean, one of the paradoxes, it seems to me, the book very early on is you say that pain, the physical experience of pain is, it can be isolating, it can render it very hard to use language, but you also argue that pain is essentially, is social, that it's intercommunicative, that it it's sort of lives in a culture rather than as an isolated human experience. Yes, I mean, we all learn what is pain. We all learn from infancy, from the moment of birth, how to communicate pain, how to use gestures, use screams, inarticulate vocalizations, how to use language in order to elicit the kind of sympathy that we all want when we're suffering. And, you know, I'm an historian. And so what I really found particularly interesting is the often really creative ways that people in pain sought to communicate to other people. So, you know, I look at from the 18th century all the way to the present, the different metaphors, the different languages, the different stories of pain that people actually use. Yes, and you say actually the story of pain, most people would instinctively think there isn't a story, it's just something that that happens, that's experienced. Is part of that story how metaphors have changed and how have they changed? How have our ways of expressing pain changed? Yeah, I think there is a story of pain because, you know, the ways we feel pain, the extent of the suffering that we have really depends so much on environmental interactions, on who's in front of us. I mean, it makes a difference, for example, what colour the analgesic pill is. It makes a difference if the doctor is wearing a white coat. It makes a difference on what the weather is like or 
what our marriage is like, what our relationships are like. There's not a direct relationship between the kind of extent of tissue damage, for example, and the amount of suffering that we have. These things are very, very cultural. So I think that's one aspect of the cultural aspects of pain. The other aspect is what you talk about, which you just mentioned, about metaphors. Now, we can see that metaphors over over time have changed. There are some metaphors that are there whatever period we're looking at. So, for example, pain is a fire that burns, a dog that bites, a knife that, that cuts. These are metaphors that you can find in any cultures. But there are other metaphors that suddenly arise at various times. So, for example, there are metaphors associated with electricity. So, you know, once we get electricity in the 19th century, all of a sudden, literally all of a sudden, people stop talking about pain as something that flickers, you know, like a candle, but instead it's something that's sharp, it sparks, again, like electricity. So we see these changes over time. Is there a way objectively at all of measuring pain of comparing people's I mean you say because obviously it's an intersubjective thing in the way it's expressed but can you tell the difference between degrees of suffering with any sort of scientific certainty no you can't actually and this is one of the very interesting things about pain that um you know we have known people have known since ancient times that just to take an example that men in battle you may even lose a leg and yet not register pain Okay, they keep fighting, even though very, very serious wounds. Hopping into battle. Yeah. And, you know, that excited states, extreme sports, people don't experience pain. There was a really, and this is all very anecdotal, up until the Second World War, and there's a very, very important study done in 1942 and 1943 by a doctor called Beecher, Harold Beecher. And what he did is that he asked men... On the beachhead, beachfront, these are men who had just come out of battle. They had very, very serious wounds. You know, leg had been blown off, things like that. And he asked hundreds, he and his team asked hundreds of men, are you in pain? And what was really striking is that over half said, no, I'm not in pain, even though they had very, very serious wounds. He then said, well, he thought, well, maybe they're just being stoical, you know. So then said, well, would you like some pain relief? Would you like some morphine? And they said, no, no, I'm fine. Don't worry. He was wondering why this was. He went then back to the States, and what he did is he asked people in emergency wards the same question. These, again, people with very similar kinds of serious wounds. And they were all 100% in absolute agony. So what he did is he advanced this hypothesis that actually, that the emotions made a difference. So for those men on the beachhead, waiting for the boat to take them to safety, take them to hospital, in fact, the worst had already happened. (laughs) Everything in front of them looked really great. They were going home, or at least they thought it was going to be great. But of course, for those people in the emergency ward, their great life had just ended. Everything in front looked, looked terrible. And it was this work, Beach's work, that actually caused, led to this huge explosion in the science of pain and why it is that you feel differently depending on your emotions and your circumstances. Does that mean that there's something to the arguments that are made that you can meditate to obviate the need of pain or that you can induce a sort of 
psychological state that will prevent you from feeling pain. Indeed. There's definitely strong scientific evidence, as well as anecdotal evidence, of course, that things like meditation can help certain people. In a sense, you know, the current stream of meditation is very, very similar in reality to earlier ways of dealing with pain, which of course are religious, which are through prayer. So, you know, when I was looking in the 19th century, one of the chief ways of coping with pain was religious. In Christian uh, communities, it was prayer. There was this idea that, in fact, pain was a good thing. You embrace pain. You suffer in this world so you don't have to suffer in the next world. That pain was something that was actually a good thing. It was something inflicted by a a loving God. But is it particular... And does it have a particular kind of effect on Western society or Christian society that inscribed at the very heart of the Christian worldview is this idea of the passion of the Christ, that pain itself is at the centre of our civilization in a way, in a way maybe it isn't at the centre of, say, certain Eastern civilizations. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we still have that legacy. Even those of us who are not at all religious or indeed are atheists, we still talk about things like no pain, no gain. Uh, we still you know, talk about dealing with pain through meditation, which is according to some readings, a different form of prayer, a secular form of prayer. So this is very, very at the heart of of who we are. And of course, we do have to remember that a lot of people today in today's society do use prayer and do use religious symbols, religious artifacts when they are suffering. Um, They just don't tell their doctor that they're doing that. So in other words, in a sense, even for religious people today, people, true believers, they take the medicine, they go and see their doctor, take the medicine, get all those tests done, but then they may still go home home and they may still pray. So it's just been secularised, if you like. Yeah, no, you tend to have a religious exclamation when you hit your finger with a hammer, don't you? Um, <laughs> you talk in the book about the sort of Cartesian history that's made us think of pain as something that's sort of separate to our minds, or that's, it's, you know, there's a mind-body divide that you argue against in the book. But is there a meaningful distinction at all to be made between what you might call physical and emotional pain or you know, this idea of psychosomatic pain. The first question that people ask me when I say I'm writing history of pain is, oh, physical pain or emotional pain? That's always the first question. And as you say, you know, the book is saying, actually, there is no such thing as physical pain without emotional suffering. And there's no such thing as emotional suffering without physical pain. This is why analgesics work for people who, for example, are grieving. You know, it is physiological as well as everything else. So you can't separate out the, the two. And I think that's important. Analgesics work for, I mean, if you've got a broken heart, you can take an aspirin. Absolutely. Grief, heartache, <laughs> all those sorts of things. You, you know, analgesics, different kinds of analgesics, actually work. They affect that part of the brain that's suffering, that's in pain. And this is something that really scientists have only fairly recently begun to understand. What I think we need to keep remembering is that physicians in the past, 18th century, actually understood that very, very well. 18th century physicians did not have this Cartesian separation between mind and, and, and body. In fact, they believed very, very strongly that if you are to heal 
a patient heal someone. You actually needed to deal not only with, let's say, that lesion or that tumor, but you also had to you had to know about their relationships. You had to know about how they were feeling, their emotional states, their relationships with their children, the weather, their diet. This all broke down in the course of the 19th century with the invention of different technologies and different scientific knowledges, you know, chemistry, neurology, physiology. So So instead of the doctor sitting in front of the patient and saying, tell me about your life, and that being the main way of curing that person, instead, physicians don't even look at you most of the time. They simply say, okay, we'll do this test, this test, and this test, and that's it. So in a sense, doctors, medical professionals have lost that knowledge of how to help people. So does that sort of fashion for, you know, people talking about holistic wellness and so on, is actually a kind of return to the source rather than a rather than a new departure. It is, it is. And of course, you know, I don't want to sound negative here. I come from a medical family, and believe me, I'm the first person to pop a pill if I'm in pain. Your medical knowledges are incredibly important, and those tests have have changed everyone's lives. But I think we do need to kind of also remember that touch um, and that sympathy makes a difference for people who are suffering. And that's something that was well known in previous periods. Now, something that obviously enters into your story in quite a big way is the invention of anaesthesia and analgesics. Why was it that it took so long, even though there were, you know, people running around having ether frolics in the you know, beginning of the sort of 18th century, that it took a while before it actually started to be used and it didn't keep you know, it wasn't instantly rolled out everywhere pain was present. Yeah, people knew, doctors, scientists knew how to alleviate pain through ether half a century before it was ever used, before chloroform was used, for example. And there, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Part of it goes back to this religious, this idea that pain is something that a loving God has inflicted to teach a lesson, and therefore we need to learn that lesson. Part of it is also this idea that pain creates character that pain is adaptive, so evolutionary idea as well as religious ideas of character and adaptation to environment. It's also due to an idea about notions of what constitutes body and mind. So prior to this Cartesian dominance that we have from the 19th century, there was this idea that the individual is made up of these indistinguishable layers of mind or soul, as they would call it, and the physical, physiological flesh. And you can't separate them. They are intertwined. And so there was this fear that if you put someone under and chloroform, for example, then what you're doing is you're separating the mind or the soul and the body, and that that is the sure way to death and destruction that was very greatly, greatly feared. So I think that there's also that scientific reason for reluctance. Is there also a sort of Puritan anxiety that if your if your mind is doolally with ether, suddenly it's it's unity with you know, if it suddenly meets its maker then your personality doesn't go intact to heaven. Oh, absolutely. Very, very dangerous. Uh, very dangerous if you die under um, ether or chloroform because what your, your soul is not there. So does this mean immediate hell? These are very, very seriously debated questions of the period. And what I think I find really interesting, there's also questions about the morality of this exchange. So it's no coincidence that at the heart of anxieties about pain and the relieving of pain during operations or childbirth, for example, are women because there are great fears that 
a woman who's been given ether is not conscious, is somehow open to sexual assault or moral assaults upon her integrity and her morality, um, her moral self. So there's also those sort of sexualized uh, comments that are being made all the time in medical journals. And obviously there's a kind of ideological, sexual ideological thing, which seems to have a, a cousin these days. I mean, the sort of natural birth movement, there is a sense, I think, with a lot of people, for a lot of people, that it's, it's somehow more wholesome not to have pain relief when you give birth. I mean, what do you feel about that? Yeah, I think what is absolutely crucial in terms of childbirth is that the woman who is giving birth has control over her body and that whole experience. For some women, this does mean natural birth. For other women, it doesn't. And I think what concerns me about all those debates is they have tended to become very, very polarised with almost missionary zeal, the natural birth movement, as against the sort of medicated birthing specialists. And these two polar opposites are sort of fighting each other. And I just think that misses the point totally. You know, giving birth like any other form of excruciating pain is something that the person in pain has to have ownership of. And that's the crucial thing. So whether it's natural or whether it's using you know, modern medication and modern analgesics, the woman must decide herself. I mean, you know, one occasionally hears, I don't know whether truthfully, this, this idea that women have higher pain thresholds than men. But what surprised me in your book particularly was that for a long time, people thought that children didn't feel pain. Yeah. Children in pain is one of the real shocking things that I, I discovered. In the 18th century, children were regarded to have being exquisitely sensitive to pain. But then there's a moment in history in the 1870s when a number of very prominent scientists did some work on physiology of infants. And they came up with this idea that, in fact, infants didn't really feel pain. So when they were screaming, it wasn't pain. It was sort of a instinctive, automatic um, uh, response. It wasn't true pain because they're not fully wired. And indeed, they don't remember it. So from that period, from the 1870s until, and this is the shocking bit, until the 1970s, infants by and large were considered to be insensitive to pain. What this meant is that right up into the late 1960s and early 1970s, infants are having full operations, amputations, the work, stomach operations, without any analgesic, let alone anesthetic. You know, that's that's a very, very modern thing. Now, why did it change in the 1970s? Primarily it changed because mothers are suddenly saying, hang on here, you know, doctors, you may think you know better, but I know my child. So they're standing up to physicians. And also, of course, the science is beginning to show that, in fact, these children are not just little animals as they were uh, regarded, you know, with sort of a reflex well, action, but were really, really suffering. Wasn't it the first generation of children to who had these operations were going into therapy or something. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, there's a strong correlation between infants in the, this earlier periods in the 50s and 60s who were having these operations and psychological problems in adulthood. And there's some very, very interesting work actually drawing a causal link between those two. Also, I should just ask, since torture is once again in the news, as you know, we've got the president sort of appearing to endorse it, what does your work on pain tell you about torture and the efficacy of it and does it how does it work how does it fit into your picture yeah torture 
doesn't work because people in those situations are just going to do absolutely anything to get out of it. People have been saying this about torture from for centuries. <laughs> and I think the interesting question is, okay, so why does it keep coming up? Why do periodically are there these major political defenses of it? And part of it, I think, is the sense of impotence uh, amongst policymakers and politicians who know that there's nothing that they can do and yet want to be seen to be making a stand against alleged terrorists. Part of it is also simply this um, view that these people need to suffer and they are guilty, whatever they say, they are guilty and therefore they need to be punished as, at the very least, as a symbol and a sign for others who may be tempted to follow in their footsteps. Finally, can I just ask, I mean, it seems apt with Fifty Shades of Grey in the cinemas again. And, you know, Queen saying pain is so close to pleasure. Is there anything in that? I mean, is this pain that's voluntarily undergone for sexual excitement or whatever, is that is that the same as pain, pain, or is that something different? It's something different, thank goodness. You know, pain can be easily used as something that is exquisitely sexual and exquisitely enjoyable. But of course, that kind of embrace of these extreme experiences, these extreme sensations, is just a completely different world to the pain that is inflicted upon people. And I think I think it's a pity that we kind of use similar words to refer to these very, very different experiences. And I think the other important thing to note is that, you know, pain is never democratic. You know, pain, certain groups of people experience more pain than other groups of people. So the poor, manual workers, minorities, these people not only experience more pain, but they also are much more likely to have their experience of pain minimised or even denied totally. Well, there was a, I mean, there was a whole sequence in a book of sort of racist accounts of saying that certain races don't feel pain in the same way that... Yes, yeah, certain races don't feel pain, certain minority groups. And there's an irony here because, you know, for those groups of people, they can't, it's a catch-22 situation because on the one hand, they are accused of not feeling pain. So they're physically insensitive to pain. Their nerves are not developed enough, those sorts of arguments. Therefore, you don't need to give them analgesics or anaesthetics. But on the other hand, the same people, and sometimes in the same article in the medical journals say that, ah, actually, they're exquisitely sensitive to pain and they're hysterical. Therefore, also, you don't need to give them analgesics or anaesthetics. So either way, these people are not being given sufficient pain relief. And this is this carries on to the day. This is not simply something of, you know, previous generations and previous centuries. Even today, in hospitals, different types of people are given different levels of pain relief. And is there any sort of suggestion that a systematic kind of study of that can be made and that can be corrected? I mean, is it simply something that we've got to the stage of research that finds this out? There's a huge amount of systematic scientific research that shows this. And that is going some way towards helping alleviate this sense, this injustice. But one thing I argue is that I don't actually think that's enough. Because we also have to remember that it's not only medical professionals who need to be educated about, you know, 
pain and and how you can alleviate it in a way that's just and equitable. But actually, it's also pain patients themselves. So pain patients also somehow, well, like me, when I was in hospital, I wanted to be a good patient. Therefore, I didn't complain, even though my morphine pump wasn't working. But also patients themselves, sometimes they fear taking strong pain relief. They also may fear that they may become addicted. They also may fear that, well, if they get the strongest relief, then what happens if it gets worse? They also, you know, want to be seen to be stoical. So I think it's not only educating medical professionals, but I think it's also educating the broader public about this. Thank you very much. And in this week's book section in the magazine, Philip Hencher writes about Herman Rorschach and his curious ink blots. Peter Parker describes the rather miserable sex life of Denton Welch. Tom Fleming reviews new short stories. Stuart Ritchie takes on Dan Dennett's book about the human consciousness. And Alan Mallinson considers the rise and fall of ancient Rome's Praetorian Guard. 